So there weren't very many questions. <laughs> I was kind of surprised. <laughs> There's almost always more questions. I'm not sure if that's because you guys have more outlets for asking questions in the individual meetings or what, but you know, we have a few questions here, so this may be a, a shorter session. Um, the first question is about walking meditation. And um, so the question is, with walking meditation, are we just keeping the attention on the soles of our feet in this early period, or are we doing something else, watching the mind, etc.? Um, the instructions for walking meditation are identical to the instructions we've been giving here in the hall. Are you aware? What are you aware of? So there's no need to direct the attention to choose an object like the feet. Um, if you find, like as in the sitting meditation, if you find that, um, this is actually a topic that, that uh, Alexis and I were talking about just a few minutes ago, that sometimes it is helpful to have an object that, to start from. Both in the sitting, in the sitting, sometimes you know it can be helpful if if the mind, when um, when we open to, am I aware? What am I aware of? If the mind kind of doesn't get it, doesn't get what it means to be aware, doesn't get what it means to know the objects of awareness, it can be helpful to start by just picking an object. That might be in the walking. It might be the soles of your feet. In sitting, it might be a primary object like the breath. And um, except our usual relationship with primary object is stay there. If the mind wanders, we come back to the primary object, right? That's what you're usually familiar with about primary object. That's the relationship. That is not the relationship we cultivate with primary object in this practice. The primary object in this practice is more of a place to remind yourself, oh right, this is what it's like to be aware. This is what it's like to know an object in the present moment. And as soon as you notice the attention, like, like in, in uh, the sitting meditation, you're sitting, you're breathing, you're knowing the breath, and then you hear a sound. rather than saying, oh, sound, that's not what I'm paying attention to, come back to the breath, you notice that the attention has picked up on that object. Likewise with walking, you may start with paying attention to the soles of your feet as a place to remind yourself, oh, this is, this is what it's like to be aware in the present moment. This is what it's like to know what, it, uh, I, what, what is known in the present moment. And as you're walking you will begin to, because that awareness is present, you'll begin to know other experiences. The mind will know seeing. The mind will know that things are heard. The mind will recognize other body sensations. And even if you're kind of staying in touch with the soles of the feet, you're also aware, conscious, and recognizing, oh, I'm aware of these other experiences. And then at some point we can let go of that primary object and just recognize essentially the follow the awareness, follow where the attention is drawn. Did I did I talk about the dog analogy in here? Yeah. I I did it in a in a group. Did I talk about it in the in the hall? Yes. Okay, just like that, 
You know, it's like the attention is like that dog that's like leaping around and happy and interested and going and picking up on sounds and sights. And, and our job is to just follow that. Be aware of what the attention naturally moves to. And it can help to start with some place to uh, have a sense of what it means to be aware. But we don't have to hold to that and then have some a, a agenda or opinion that this is the place to be, this is where I cultivate my awareness. But it just helps to remind us about what it means to be aware. And so with walking, we can use the soles of our feet as a place to start if that's an easy object to connect with. And as you walk and notice the soles of your feet, you'll start to recognize there's sight happening. Seeing is happening, and hearing is happening, and movement is happening, and oh, happiness is happening, and confusion is happening, and pressure is happening, and sound is happening. You know, just just the kind of the attention being pulled to experience after experience. Sight can become a really um. Sight is a really helpful object to learn to pay attention to, to learn to be aware of. Um, We don't cultivate that as much in some of our more uh, familiar or traditional, in some of the more traditional meditative practices, the Mahasi's technique. Um, You know, we, we cultivate lifting, moving, placing in the walking. We cultivate mindfulness of breathing. Eyes are closed in the sitting. Um, And so when we go into our daily lives, working with sight isn't as familiar of a meditation object. And so in the walking practice in particular, it can be very interesting to recognize just how much seeing is happening. In order to walk around the grounds, you have to be seeing. So there is seeing happening as you're walking. Can you be conscious of that? Can you be aware that that is happening? You are hearing. Can you be aware that hearing is happening? The way I've described it about, you know, one object after another object after another object, it can feel like that in the walking or in the sitting. You know, as as I said, you know, it's really the same instructions. It's just a different set of objects. In the sitting, there's more inner body sensation, hearing, mental objects. In the walking, there's a lot more moving body sensation and sight are added as more objects, along with the mental objects, the the mind, the emotions, the thoughts. So in the walking, in exploring, seeing, I mean, you don't, you don't have to like focus on seeing all the time. But um, I, I mentioned that, er, that first day, kind of recognizing the distinction between seeing and looking, between hearing and listening. And that can be an interesting um, place to, to explore because as you're doing walking meditation in particular, I mean, uh, these grounds around here are beautiful. You know, Betsy does such a beautiful job with the gardens here. And you know, the attention can be drawn to various 
um, sights. So what is it to, to be seeing, kind of in a general sense? Sometimes it just feels like, I remember doing some walking the first time this kind of struck me. It felt like I was in a movie, and it's just like seeing the scenery kind of go by. You know, just that sense of seeing is happening. And if you're in that place of just noticing kind of the general seeing, not focusing on objects, something might happen in the realm of sight. You might round a corner and there'd be a big splotch of red in the periphery of your attention. Attention might get drawn to that. What's that color? The attention tends to get drawn to color, uh, that is out, outstanding in a field of um, vision. It gets drawn to movement. So you're walking along and uh, there's a bird that starts hopping on the... And suddenly you're looking at that bird. So what's the di- what's what's that? You know, that's essentially the mind going from being more receptive to directing. And who did that? It's a process. There's some kind of basic processes around sight. I think. I mean, it seems it seems to me that there's some basic processes around sight that human beings sen- tend to be drawn to. That we we are we orient. There's an orienting function that happens. So it's not like. I decided to look at that red thing. It's like the uh, red experience appeared in the field of vision and the um, mental processes of the mind oriented to that and, dis- and, and, and chose to look at that. It's not about me or I choosing that. So with walking... Sayadaw Utejaniya, somebody asked him in one of my group interviews, so how do you practice walking meditation? And he said, I don't practice walking meditation. I practice awareness while walking. This is what we're doing. We're practicing awareness while sitting, while walking, while eating, while going to the bathroom, while lying down to go to sleep. We are practicing awareness all day long. When we go home, that will be the instruction. Practice awareness. We learn to practice awareness while driving, while being on the computer. In the monastery, Sayadaw opened up the computer for sessions for people to practice awareness while being on the computer. I'm not going to do that here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but he, he, did, he did do that because, uh, you know, he, he has a very broad... Uh, perspective and a very patient perspective <laughs> around the the settling of the mind. So we practice awareness while doing whatever we're doing, while chopping vegetables, while cleaning the toilet, we practice awareness, while sweeping the floors, while uh, washing dishes, we practice awareness. Am I aware? What am I aware of? What's my attitude? While walking, while sitting, it's the same practice, the same practice. I think if there's something more to say. Oh, there is something more to say about walking. I haven't seen too many people doing this, but I'll just 
put it out there. In the um, the style that we are exploring here, um, we don't do an artificially slow walk. We don't try to slow down the walking so we can see something more precisely. We walk at a pace that feels natural. You could start your walking by just checking in. What is the pace that feels most comfortable? What is the pace that feels most supportive of mindfulness? And that pace may change at various times of the day. There's kind of a, with a level of mindfulness, with the minds, where the mind is in a particular moment, there tends to be a pace of movement, whether it's a movement of a hand like this or a walking pace. There tends to be a pace of movement that the mindfulness can kind of ooh, naturally land in. And if you can um, be at that pace, like in the walking meditation times, you can find the pace that feels most congenial to being mindful and, and start from there. Somebody brought up in the, in the group discussion today about how the pace of movement in, in working with her yogi job uh, around vegetables, her natural pace of movement felt like it was much slower. And that that's where mindfulness was really comfortable and able to kind of settle in. And yet, she wasn't going to get the job done if she kept going at that pace. And so we do also have to recognize we can be mindful when we are moving in a pace that's not what would be the most comfortable pace of mindfulness. So she actually sped up her work and was able to notice the the um, sense of a little bit of discomfort about moving a little faster than was was comfortable for where her mind was. And then it was just the unfolding of that process. So the, the pace of walking also is can be very supportive for mindfulness. That's all I can think of. What have you got to say, Alexis? See what comes to mind. Um, just want to build a little bit on the the idea of the pace doesn't really matter. Seeing how awareness awareness doesn't really care um, what it knows. Right? It doesn't. Uh, it's not fragile in the sense of some things will ruin awareness. It may feel that way, and it's partly because there's a lack of practice or familiarity with awareness, knowing some things. And so I think that feels like sometimes if, you know, I can't move quickly because maybe I'll lose awareness. Or if I move naturally, I'll lose awareness. And so I just wanted to do a little um, exercise. So if you just put your hand out with, you know, put your hand out in front of you and become mindful of the sensations in your hand. Okay, establish that. So being mindful of sensations and now begin to just slowly move it a little bit. Okay, maintaining a sense of awareness of the sensations in the hand. Now move it a little bit faster. 
Okay, and just slowly start to speed it up to the point where you feel like you might lose awareness. Okay, now s- just move it faster and faster, noticing the sensations. And now try and shake the awareness off of the hand. Okay, <laughs> shake, it, shake it hard enough that there's no more awareness there. Can you do it? <laughs> so you can't shake awareness off. Okay, good. <laughs> so that's an example of the ease of which awareness can be with something. And yet I think our interpretation sometimes of what awareness looks like is a view that's in the mind conditioned by some perception of how, how awareness looks. And I was uh, recently in, in Burma with Sayadaw and I was going for a walk with him. We were going to have breakfast and there was an, with another yogi and he was just noticing how this yogi sometimes walks a little bit um, not in his normal pace. And at, at that moment, I think he was walking, I can't remember if he was walking normally or not, but oftentimes seeing that this yogi would change just something. And Sayadaw said, he looked over and said, how come, how come you walk a little different sometimes? And the yogi said, oh, what, are you, what are you talking about? He said, a little, you know, a little precious or a little controlling. And so the yogi said, hmm, I'm not sure. I have to look. He said, okay, look. And um, they had a conversation later. And Sando was telling me that the reason why he wanted to point that out was that when we have a tendency to control the movement, control the body, that tendency can show up in the mind. And then the controlling of what we're watching or how we're watching starts to get influenced. And he really encourages that natural state. Just naturally be in your body, in your movements. You know, so it's really kind of easy and relaxed. Then that feeds back into the mind. The mind is easy, it's relaxed. And it's sort of a piece in that not that we're just acting out all of our normal habits, but there's an ease in the sense of I'm there to watch and learn, not to try and get myself to be, you know, really good and do it right. And I'm going to walk perfectly and then sit perfectly and, you know, get up perfectly and then eat my meal perfectly because everyone's watching me, which is the way I always feel whenever I come into the food line. Everyone's watching. And then I look over and no one's watching. I'm always surprised that no one's watching. So, you know, it's like we always try and do these things, uh, you know, to get get things right. And so around, around walking, it's a great place to explore because, you know, when we do leave retreat settings, we tend to just let the guard down and there's an ease and we walk out, you know, and we, you know, in our lives, we're walking around. Uh, just to add, I was, I think, mentioned to someone in the group, uh, in, individual today, to check um, what is it like when the bell finally rings at the end. And sometimes just at that time when the bell rings, if there's been a bit of tension, you know, at that, that moment for some people, there's, a, there's an ease of just, ah, ah, sitting's over. And it may be for that one moment, that's the right attitude. It's like, yes, got it right there. And I know there's a, there's a monk in, I met in, England, Thai forest monk, and he would sometimes ring the gong a bit early <laughs> in order to interrupt the sitting and then say, okay, now that right there, that sense of sort of just relaxing, keep that, keep that attitude. And I thought, yeah, that's, and that's in some ways when we're really relaxed in the world walking around, it's that kind of relaxed state that the mind feels most comfortable to be in. And 
that's where we have to really try and generate the, the remembering to notice. Because feeling relaxed is very different than letting our mind just be casual and, and not engaged. So the remembering, but also relaxed. And so Saida often tells people at the beginning of you know, starting any, of, any practice of just checking, is the mind relaxed or tense? And just by checking that already, there's a sense of, okay, getting familiar with the orientation of approaching this moment feels, all right, I'm, I'm already tense trying to get something done. Don't need to change it, but just recognizing that that's there. Mm. I think I'll, I think that's, that's fine. Yeah. Andrea passed this question. I only had a, a, minute, a second to look at this before. So I got handed this question. I don't know what this says about me or about her, but it's a, how to practice with or relate to sexual fantasies and how do sexual fantasies relate to the precepts? Okay. I'm somewhat new to teaching, so I've not actually said the word sexual fantasies to a group before. So this is new territory, sexual fantasies. <laughs> sexual fantasies, I can do that. Um, <laughs> so the precepts, and just do that one first. Precepts really are, um, as you can tell, they're you know, not killing, not stealing, not lying, sexual misconduct, and um, refraining from, sexu- from sexual, I'm going to say sexual a lot, <laughs> refraining from intoxicants. Right, so right. Maybe part of where that's coming from. Too. Okay. Yeah, so not refraining from sexu- intentional sexual activity. Right. And so all of that, even the brahmacharya precept, is around actions. Um, and so in this case, it's not, it's not a pr- you're not breaking a precept when sexual fantasies come. And I think the Buddha was very wise in how he framed a lot of the rules, that they were rules that one could refrain from through mindfulness. Now, if we could refrain from any defilement through mindfulness, maybe the Buddha would have expanded the way the precepts are offered. But the precepts are really things that are possible through an intention to refrain from. So really big things like killing and harming, we can refrain from. Now, sexual fantasy activity of the mind. And you're just looking at the precepts. These are all very primal forces. And so they're instinctual in some ways, you know, coming from deep layers of evolutionary conditioning, you know, and and they're really part of, of what make us up. And so with a sexual fantasy, I see it as just and the question is how to practice with or relate to it. It's a natural phenomenon. Incredibly natural. I, I feel blessed in some ways to be in, in a practice, in a tradition like Buddha Dharma that just is free from those sorts of judgments that would condemn something and make it harder to, to learn about, it, about this territory. And so I was, I was surprised that when I ordained with, with Saito Hutejaniya, and so for two years while I was with him, of course there was no acting out of sexual activity, and yet, I learned so much about the nature of sexual energy 
because of practice, because of the ability to watch, to be aware, to see the judgments, the views, the places that I get identified or get lost in it and end up, you know, getting caught into the whole process of fantasizing and and then learning how the body reacts and and you know knowing from mutation yeah that it was just that's that's nature it's not a problem you're not bad and i felt so relieved and he was telling me how you know americans basically westerners none of them would ever ask about sexual you know questions and he said for some reason different cultures are different the vietnamese that's all the men when they get together the monks with him that's all they ask about is how do i deal with you know this this fantasy and you know being attracted to that nun and you know it's like oh and he, so he that's the territory but for for a lot of westerners there's i think a lot of conditioning that it's not uh, the appropriate domain to talk about or to look at um you know so what is you know what is a fantasy and you know sexual fantasy i just you know the reflecting on how powerful it is to have an image come to mind, right? an image. And then if it's in the form that has a lot of craving and desire, right? how that leads into emotional response and the, all the, the liking of that and the indulgence that can come. And so for, for sexual fantasy, it's really the same as any other any other thought realm is we there's lots of things we like to think about you know sometimes sexual energy is is in a phase of our life where it's, it's very strong for some people it's not a particularly strong one i was having a conversation with my partner and um she was she had there's these chocolate um coconut ice cream bars that uh, for her are like the thing and they were in the freezer and She's not been wanting to eat fewer of them. And so we were talking about them and they were about 10 feet behind her. And we were kind of just talking about the craving that she was experiencing, trying to speak in real time about what was going on. And she, as we were talking, just slowly, step by step, backing up towards the freezer. <laughs> and so regardless of what we were saying, you know, it was, it, it was playful, but you know, there it was. The energy was, was magnetizing back towards the freezer reaching back and as we were going, just all of it pretty mindful and yet the desire, you know, was strong enough. Not a big deal, but um, and these are, this is the nature of human existence. You know, we have these forces and um, I mean, this is why we're, we're in the Dharma, you know, is to see the nature of them, see what happens when we're not mindful of uh, natural energies that can lead into indulgence and then heedlessness, and if we get caught in a pattern that is that becomes um, you know unskillful for our own well-being or for someone else, how that might cause harm. There's nothing that's harmful about sexual energy, but just when it's not seen the force of desire, and there's been there is a lot of harm that's caused in the world by just the nature of fantasy and then greed and and, uh, and the clinging that comes around from that and that's true for our, you know all the activities that we see where there's harm in the world um, there's the clinging after wanting or the aversion after the unwanted and so the practice around sexual fantasy 
is first recognizing its nature. It's natural. If it has a very strong pull to it, you know, maybe taking a breath or two to just really help the mind get some stability. Uh, Recognizing that present moment, there's this moment and it's happening. You know, this moment is right now. We're here in this room. You're not wherever the sexual fantasy says you are. Uh, In Paris, maybe, I don't know where sexual fantasies happen. Um, (laughs) So all the skillful means that are that we use in any in in any of the ways of relating to thoughts and um the normal process it's i think we we would maybe bracket i think we think about the category of of certain topics because we think it's not good and i think that goes for sometimes the feelings of aversion or self-judgment or guilt we don't want to feel these things and so then we we don't include that in the nature of Dhamma, right? So we really want to look at what is the judgment do I have towards that particular mind state? Is that allowed? And if it's seen in awareness, what's the difference between that and being lost in it? Right? And just naturally working with that. I think I'll stop there. What was the other thing? You said something. It's not this, it's this. Oh, I, I was talking about the precept, yeah. Yeah. Um, oh. that the precept that we're on here on retreat is not refraining from sexual misconduct, it's refraining from intentional sexual activity. And so I just, I just wondered if that was part of where the question was coming from, thinking that, in, that a sexual fantasy was somehow an intentional sexual activity. And it, it's not an activity, um, although, although one one piece that I I would really like to encourage in this, I mean, it, um, it makes me smile to think about saying this, but <laughs> um, noticing, I mean, noticing sexual fantasy is a great way to really get just how much of a feedback there is between mind and body how potent that connection is. Uh, so notice that, the cause and effect relationship. That's, that's what's happening in the present moment. So that's one, one piece. It's an, another part of the exploration. And then, um, you know, see what happens. Are you... In te- so, so sexual fantasy can arise just as a phenomenon, not that we're doing it, right? It can be, it can be just a, a mental arising, spontaneous. You see somebody and then the fantasy arises. Um, And then because of the body response to that, the pleasure of the body response, oh, there's a hook. There's a strong hook to that. And uh, then we jump on the bandwagon of the fantasy and want to continue it. And there's, you know, there's where delusion is, you know, kicking in. It's like, yeah, this is going to make me feel good. Well, it does make you feel good for a little while. Um, but again, it's that hook to, this is it. This is, it, it, at, a, at a strange level, in that moment, our mind believes, like me with the chocolate, you know, it's like the mind believes, yes, this is going to be good. And it's going to be good for a long time. Our mind confuses, deludes us into believing that. 
So, uh, you know, just the cause and effect relationship, the inner relationship between body and mind explored in this. With any thought, I mean, with any thought, the relationship between body and mind is a very potent uh, wisdom door, seeing that interconnection between mind and body. And the other piece I'll just point out for me, more generally fantasy, not so much sexual fantasy, but more generally fantasy, um, exploring the kind of like, where does the mind start to go there? I mean, you might wake up into the fantasy. And then you can just explore it in these ways that we've been talking about. But you also might notice kind of what is it that happens? I mean, so how do I say this? It's like through through watching the process of fantasy happen, you might start to recognize that there's particular, for instance, states of mind from which the mind goes, this is boring, let me find something more interesting to pay attention to. And that the that the, the mind will be drawn to create a fantasy of, you know, it might be a vacation fantasy or a, uh, a fantasy of um, food fantasy. It, it might, you know, a variety of kinds of fantasies that one of the things the Buddha said is that this kind of pull to fantasy happens because the mind basically does not know of any other escape from suffering than to, the untrained mind does not know any escape from suffering other than to find a road to the pleasant, find a doorway to the pleasant. And fantasy is a, is a, is a well-greased path to the pleasant. So, is fantasy coming out of an inability or a, a kind of a uncomfortableness with dukkha? Can you be willing to hang out with dukkha? The, the Buddha points us to that untrained mind looking for pleasure. And that looking for pleasure might be, as in my case, control is one of my favorite forms of pleasure. <laughs> so, you know, it's like my mind goes towards how can I control this, you know. that Those are my fantasies. How can I control this? Not, oh, let me go to a beach somewhere. It's like, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to change this. And who does it feel good to feel like I'm in control? So, you know, the mind, the mind goes towards pleasure. Whatever way it knows to find pleasure when it's in dukkha. So that's a very interesting uh place to explore. Did that trigger anything more for you? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, I'm just going to say it's good to with certain objects that are being known to, to really recognize what it is. And so with sexual fantasy there's image and stories and to really be aware of, wow, look at that power of image. And then as, as Andrew, Andrew was saying, and then how that impacts the body and the mind-body connection. And, I've, and I didn't really spell it out, but that was really so insightful for me when I was watching 
imagery and stuff, fantasies come up in my mind. I had never known. I just didn't know to even be aware that there was mind and body and that they had a connection. It just sort of, they all came together. But then it was so interesting to see, oh yes, mind leading to body experiences and then heat and feelings and then leading back to you know fantasy and thinking and that there was a whole process and that I could see it as it began to the mind you know started to become aware and just watching the energy begin to diminish and then seeing that actually there was a bit of for me the insight of wow it really has some suffering to crave to want to reach out to yearn even though unseen it felt very pleasurable and I felt the release from it not you know this that unhooking a little bit the difference from between that and being caught in it and so like with any of these things you're just noticing the difference what is it to be caught in something versus being aware of it and then being aware of it with the right attitude in the sense of allowing it seeing it as nature so all of those things we just discover what what is that like what is that like rather than telling us well it's more free you know to not grasp or cling or identify with something actually noticing what is that like as i have more awareness and mindfulness with this it's that insight that gives us more confidence to continue looking continue observing the the last question is around delusion and um i sometimes talk for weeks about delusion and I don't want to talk for weeks right now. <laughs> um, and so I, I, I had planned, actually, or thought that I would address this topic a little bit later in the retreat. Um, but I think I'll, I'll talk, I'll try, to, I'll try to talk fairly succinctly um, to, because um, I mentioned it this morning in the hall, I mentioned delusion and two different kinds of delusion or two different flavors of delusion I talked about this morning and that's where the question is is directed is around these different flavors are they are they versions of each other or how do we work with them that kind of thing so I want to just kind of lay out uh, try to lay out in as um, simple and as uh, clear a way as I can and as a brief of way as I can some of the terrain of delusion, and then um, hope that that doesn't just unleash a can of worms <laughs> and all a bunch more questions. <laughs> um, and what I'd like to suggest, if it does create questions, instead of writing the question to us, use the question as investigation. So, allow yourself to work with the questions that come up and um, see how your practice answers the questions. Sometimes those questions that are most interesting to us can be a great doorway to investigating experience. So, um, so this morning I talked about two forms of delusion. I talked about uh, the first kind of most basic form of delusion being a not knowing um, this is this is the kind of the grossest form of delusion, the most obvious form of delusion. This is when we are not mindful. This is when we're lost in thought. We are not connected to experience. 
This is a form of delusion. When mindfulness is not present, there is awareness, there's, there, is a, there is consciousness happening, but not even necessarily an awareness of what's happening in the present moment. We're lost in thought, or we're spaced out, or um, spaced out and not aware of it. <laughs> but that there's not the uh, knowing what's happening while it's happening. That's the kind of most fundamental form of delusion. It's the simplest form of delusion. And the way we get to know that form of delusion is when we wake up. In a way, what we start to see in that moment when mindfulness returns is, you know, there's kind of a lingering memory in that moment. We, we can't really look back at what that state of being lost was but we can, uh, there's a lingering memory of what it was like to not be mindful. Because perception and, uh, you know, the mind, the mind goes on working even when we're not mindful. And so perception is working and intentions are working. And, you know, so there's, there's, there is that stuff happening still. So the mind is recording memories even when we're not mindful. And so in the moment when we wake up, there is the memory. There's the lingering memory of what it was like when we were lost. And so in that moment, there's kind of a distinction. Or if we're, if we're not judging that moment, immediately leaping on, oh, I wasn't mindful. In that moment, there's an opportunity to really get a clear sense of the difference between what is it like to be aware? What is that awareness? And what is it like to not be aware? So we get, we get a kind of a contrast between those two states in the moment of waking up. So when we are not aware, you know, so, sometimes it's a trick question, you know, what is the instruction when we're lost in thought? Anybody? What's the instruction when we're lost in thought? There is no instruction. <laughs> there can't be, right? There's, there's nothing, there's no traction when we're lost in thought. It's when we wake up in that moment that there can be the recognition, I'm here now, I'm here now. So that state of not knowing is a very gross form of delusion. It's the, it's the, but it is the form of delusion in which most people live most of the time. Really not living through the world of thoughts and touching in every now and then to what's happening in the present moment, but almost immediately upon touching into what's happening in the present moment, it becomes about, and what do I need to do about that? And what does that person need to do? And how do I need to tell that person what to do? And we immediately go back into that disconnection from reality. It's amazing how little contact we need with reality to live. We do need some contact with reality to live, but it's amazing how little we need. So that for, that's, a, that's, the, that's the grossest form of delusion. And then um, the second form that I talked about was filters, essentially, and I talked about the delusion around self. This is one form of delusion. 
And here's where I'll get much more schematic or kind of, um, I'll, I'll just kind of sketch the territory rather than diving in deep to the territory because this is a huge territory to explore. There's a lot to explore in this. So I often, when I'm teaching about um, delusion, um, talk about three different categories of delusion. This first one of just the simple not knowing, unawareness, basically. Uh, The second one being what I would call personal condition societal kinds of delusions these are these are filters or views opinions that we have because we've been conditioned in the way we are because i went to this school and i had bad eyesight and i was very short i was the shortest kid in the school uh the teacher always put me in the front row and um that was conditions that I had growing up. And then, lo and behold, I discover to this day when I walk into a room and it's like this, I'll sit in the front row. And, uh, you know, so that's kind of a conditioned pattern. Uh, where the delusion comes in here is that I created a view about myself around that, you know. The reason I sit in the front row is because I'm so interested and what's going on. And, well, there was some truth to that, that I was interested in what's going on, but probably the reason I sat in the front row was much more to do with having been put in the front row over and over again. That's where I got comfortable being. So gravitate towards that. And then the mind creates a story about why. So this is kind of, you know, cultural, personal, personal patterns, personal views, personal agendas that are the way we see our experience. Um, these are so, so many different flavors of these. So many different flavors of these. Um, some of them are personal based on our own conditioning. Some of them are based on society. So, you know, there's just a whole, whole realm of this kind of... Uh, View. We have views about other people, what they're capable of. Uh, view, they have views about us, who we are. You know, that person, they're always 15 minutes late. And then, you know, what do we notice? We notice when they're 15 minutes late. Do we actually notice when they're not 15 minutes late? Maybe not. So there's a whole realm of that kind of... Uh, delusion that kind of filters in what certain things that we see filters so we we because of these um views that we um live in and it's hard to divorce ourselves from these views you know, we see the world in a certain through a certain perspective and we tend to see certain things and not see other things so th- this is a form of delusion when those filters are not known so this is this is a form of delusion the most deep form of delusion, the most fundamental form of delusion, are delusions that are 
operating in us because we're human. They, we all share these delusions. They're not personally, it's not because I grew up in New Jersey and went to that school and knew all these people. These delusions, that the, this last category of delusion, are delusions that seem to be soft-wired into our brains. Fortunately, they're not hard-wired, but they are very deeply ingrained. And the three, uh, three primary forms of these delusions are we tend to see what is impermanent as permanent, we tend to see what is unreliable as a place for lasting happiness, as being a place for lasting happiness. That chocolate, that sexual fantasy. We tend to see what is not self as self. So the exploration around these delusions, these are really the delusions that where I said, delusion doesn't mask the object, it masks the true nature of the object. Because we see an object, we see an experience, and we know we're seeing something. I look out into a room and I see people, I see chairs, I see walls, I see zabutans, all of that stuff. And... Um, The, the level of the this kind of delusion is that we tend to see experience. Like I see that Zabutan and it's really hard not to see it as a Zabutan. You know, that, that process of recognizing it as a Zabutan happens so fast that it's very hard not to see that through the concept of Zabutan. Very hard not to see that through the concept of Zabutan. And now I'm getting, I'm getting too deep. <laughs> this is going to open a can of worms. I'll have to close it up. <laughs> so um, the um, um, seeing what these these kind of um, uh, these kinds of delusions, taking what is impermanent to be permanent, taking what is unreliable to be reliable, what is not self to be self. We explore these delusions by seeing the object and seeing our relationship to the object. Starting to recognize what's actually happening. What's actually happening will begin to um, help us to see the impermanent, unreliable process nature of experience. Now, there was, there was a little bit of a question here um, around, you know, so delusion, delusion is present. In this kind of case, the delusion is very, like, broad, broadly present. It's not like I have delusion about the, um, um, you know, seeing 
like this Zabutan is a Zabutan, but I don't have delusion around seeing this water bottle as a water bottle. You know, it's like, it's not based in the object, this kind of delusion. It's much more fundamentally based. So it's not like I can say, oh, I have delusion about that object. Let me pick another object to pay attention to and I won't have delusion around that object. With these very fundamental delusions, they kind of go around with us. Every now and then, we may get a little taste of understanding. And this, this happens. It's like I saw at one point, it was, I was in the meditation hall and watching somebody do walking meditation. And um, the person walked behind a post. And I couldn't see the person anymore. And the mind in that moment because it was in a pretty clear state of recognition, realized it's kind of like the mind was like, oh my God, the person disappeared. You know, like kids, you know, they, some, they, they see something that's like they don't know it's still there. That's the state the mind was in. It's like the person walked behind the post, like, oh, the person is gone, they disappeared. And then a second later, they reappeared. It's like, oh, they're back. <laughs> like the, the, that revealed to my mind the kind of way it typically you know, will impute or, or create the, the continuity of permanence. We learn how to create that continuity of permanence. And it's not saying that the person disappeared. I mean, this is where it gets confusing. Um, hmm. So, um, There's two minutes. Do you want to say anything? No. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so what I'd like to suggest around this is what I said this morning. What I was pointing at this morning is that when we um, check the attitude, and this is really the important point around what I was pointing to this morning. When we check the attitude, it is helping us to uncover filters that are operating without our awareness. And when filters are operating without our awareness, that is delusion. And so the practice of checking in, what's my relationship to this experience, helps us to see delusion. You do not have to think about what I've said. In fact, I just encourage you to forget everything I said. Just don't, don't even like try to figure it out. Don't. Some of it, some of it might have kind of filtered in, and there might be something that would be, uh, you know, informing your practice. But don't try to do anything with it. And. I will probably talk about this in a few days. Maybe next week. I'll come back and revisit this topic. Delusion's hard to talk about. Hard to clarify. By its very deluding nature. So, let's sit for a minute. 